All right, how's everybody doing this morning? We're good, good. Yeah, okay, you can clap, that's cool. Are you happy to be here? Good. I don't know if y'all are clapping at other locations, but I'm sure you're happy to be where you are too. And I want to welcome you, uh, those of you at all of our different locations and those of you watching from wherever you're watching online. It's good to be together, good to dig into God's Word. And uh, that's what we're going to do this morning. But I want to start with this. Uh, Dr. Vivek Murthy uh, is former U.S. Surgeon General, and he wrote a now famous article in Harvard Business Review and said something that really struck me. Uh, He said, listen to what he said. He said, during my years caring for patients, the most common pathology I saw was not heart disease or diabetes. It was loneliness. That was fascinating to me. Now, this was before the pandemic. And so post-pandemic, there's a whole field of research that is literally calling loneliness another pandemic, an epidemic. And I know that resonates for some of us who are watching wherever you're watching from, because some of us, we feel that deeply. We feel isolated. We feel lonely in our lives and in our relationships. But I know for others of us, we hear that and we can't relate because we don't feel lonely. But loneliness isn't just a feeling. And it doesn't even mean that we don't have people around us. The research is absolutely clear that there are a lot of people who know a lot of people and yet don't feel known. It's possible to know a lot of people and not actually be known. I was at a retreat for Christian leaders a couple years ago. In fact, I was at this retreat March 2020. It was the weekend that news started to break about the pandemic. And I I vividly remember that that Saturday before Sunday with a bunch of other pastors, us jamming up the phone lines, calling back, trying to figure out what we're going to do. Are we canceling church this Sunday or what? And it was before everything was super clear. But I remember being there. And the whole purpose of this retreat is to take young, I don't know how I qualify, but young-ish leaders and, uh, and pastors And it was kind of OG mentor Christians that were pouring into us to to basically answer the question, how do you finish the race? How do you get to the end of your life and ministry having been faithful and having brought glory to God without just kind of imploding? And there was a pastor who was there or a former pastor. He was a very, very, very popular pastor Uh, who had disgraced his family and uh, really lost his ministry because of moral failure. And he was sharing with us late one night, just kind of circled around. He basically what he called the anatomy of a downfall. And he was sharing with us the backstory of how things kind of fell apart in his life. And I took notes on the things that he was saying when I journaled later. But I remember one of the things he shared was the sense of isolation that he experienced as a leader. And he said this, he said, I didn't know what a friend was. And here's how he defined a friend. He said, he said I had a whole bunch of people around me, hung out, people had great experiences. He said, but a friend is somebody who knows your hopes, your struggles, and your fears. And in that moment, I realized, Man, I don't know if anybody else qualifies as a friend but my wife. That's probably why she's so stressed out. And come on, let's be honest. 
Specifically, can I talk to us fellas for a minute? Men, men, in our culture, ladies tend to connect on a much deeper and more intimate level. And it's not all women that connect that way, but generally speaking, men, a lot of times we have these experiences, we connect over superficial things or maybe work-related things, but we don't really open our lives to other men. And this is what he was saying, and it set him up for some temptation and some dysfunction and some unhealthy, sinful patterns in his life to take root and to bear very disastrous fruit in his life. And this is partly why we want to talk in this series, Why You Need a Biblical Church. We want to talk about this biblical trait of fellowship, biblical fellowship. And this is for all of us. Now, I know some people might respond to this and say, well, well, I don't really need the church for that. I don't need the church for fellowship or these kinds of relationships. In fact, I'm better off as just this kind of spiritual free agent, just free from the constraints of, of a church to build these relationships and enjoy fellowship with all different kinds of people. They, Christians increasingly feel that way, particularly in younger generations. And I get it. I get it. But I do want to draw your attention to this verse in 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. Listen to what John writes. He says, we know, this is specifically talking about Christians, we know that we have passed out of death into life. How? What is one of the evidences that we've truly been born again? He says, because we love the brothers. That's a generic term for brothers and sisters, for, for the body of Christ, for the family of God. One of the evidences that our heart has genuinely been changed and is being changed by Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, is the fact that we love the family of God. And in that context, it's not just talking about an internal kind of heart affection it is talking about that, but it's talking about practically, consistently loving other brothers and sisters in these committed relationships where when people look at your life, what they see is you are in these intimate relationships. You have this intimate fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ. And so here's the question I want us to think about as we dive into Acts chapter 2, where we're going to spend our time together today. Here's the question I want us to think about. How is Christian fellowship different from other forms of community. Because we're going to have other forms of community, good, life-giving, helpful other forms of community with our classmates, with our co-workers, with our blood family and relatives, with our neighbors. We're going to have other forms of community. But how is Christian fellowship different and why is it so important? And my whole goal for our time is to help you evaluate whether or not you're investing in biblical fellowship the way God wants you to invest in biblical fellowship. So let me read from Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, we'll have the verses up on the screen. But let me read how Luke, the historian Luke, describes these early believers, this first church in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. He says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. 
And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let me pray before we dive into this. Father, as we open your word together, I pray that you would not only speak to our hearts, but that you would work in our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. Change us, Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, how is Christian fellowship different from other forms of community? We're going to look at four differences. Let me give them to you up top if you're taking notes. Four differences. It's a different foundation, different priorities, a different generosity, which I'll explain, and a different impact, a different effect. So let's unpack this. Christian fellowship number one is built on a different foundation. Christian fellowship is based on Jesus. Now, I know that seems painfully obvious, but I think it's important for understanding the context here in Acts chapter 2 and also for understanding how profound their fellowship was. So who are these people? When it says, and they devoted themselves, who is the they that Luke is referring to? And to answer that, you got to read a little further up in in chapter 2. So let me help you understand the context. This was festival season in Jerusalem. This is one of the busiest, most crowded times of the year. In fact, during this time, historians estimate that the population in Jerusalem would swell from about 20 to 30,000 people to over 150,000 people. So think about New Year's Eve in, in New York City, or think about Inauguration Week here in D.C., or Howard Homecoming here in D.C., if you've had the privilege of experiencing that before. And on the day of Pentecost, listen, the Apostle Peter was preaching to this massive crowd of people, and these are people from all over the known world, and look at how Luke describes them up in chapter 2, verse 9. He says, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, which are uh, converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabians. So these are all the different kinds of people that are in the crowd. And I wish I had time to, to really detail who these people were and to show you a map of where these people are from. But suffice it to say that all these people from all these different nationalities and ethnicities were listening to Peter explain the gospel. And look at verse 41. Uh, Luke writes that those who received Peter's word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And so the group that Luke is writing about in verses 42 to 47 is a group of people who were very different, but who had all been born again through faith in Jesus. Now, pause, because some of you might push back and say, well, Mike, that doesn't necessarily prove anything about Christianity. Because obviously... Judaism, or at least these Jewish festivals, were able to pull all these different people together too. So how does this highlight anything particularly unique about Christian fellowship? Well, when you read history from this time period, you see that there was something unprecedented 
happening here. It was literally something revolutionary that was happening, and it was directly tied to the uniqueness of the gospel of Jesus. Listen to how Kenneth Scott LaTourette, who was a historian from Yale University, uh, puts it. He's writing about reasons Christianity spread so rapidly throughout the Roman Empire. And he says, one of the reasons is because of what he calls its absolute inclusiveness. Now, I know inclusiveness is a buzzword in our culture today, but here's what he means. Listen to what he writes. And I'm going to read this in full because I think it's so important and so profound. He says, more than any other of his competitor religions, Christianity attracted all races and classes. The pagan deities, for example, were often tied and confined to certain regions and nations. The same is true today. He says, and even in the days of its most active proselytizing activities, Judaism never overcame its racial boundaries because converts had to become culturally Jewish. Christianity, however, gloried in its appeal to Jew, Gentile, African, and barbarian. That was a term used uh, in the Roman Empire to refer to people who were foreigners. He says, the philosophers in Greece and Rome, on the other hand, appealed to the educated only and could never win the masses. It was one of the charges against Christianity that it drew the lowly and uneducated multitude, that its essential teaching was so simple that anybody could understand. Yet Christianity also developed a philosophy that converted some of the greatest minds in the society. And Christianity, too, was for both sexes and women were active in its work, while two of the main competitor religions were almost exclusively for men. He says, there was no other religion that took in all groups and all strata of society. And here's the key. He says, the one tenable explanation of Christianity's inclusiveness was probably its teaching of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. And here's what he means. Here's why. He says, for if Jesus was not merely a teacher showing the way of salvation, but the Son of God who accomplished salvation, the members of both sexes and all races, the learned and the unlearned, the high and the low, the able and the non-able, might all be able to share in the salvation made possible in Christ. Now, I know that was a lot, but you follow what he's saying. He's saying that the gospel was revolutionary because it opened the door wide for all people to come and be reconciled to God. Now, don't misinterpret this, though. You see, on the one hand, fast forward now to our culture, particularly our our current American culture, on the one end of the spectrum, there are movements within American Christianity right now that seek to restrict Christianity to a political party, which the New Testament clearly condemns. But on the other end of the spectrum, There are professing Christians who are abandoning the historic Christian faith and sound biblical doctrine in the name of progressivism and inclusion. 
But the gospel doesn't produce the most inclusive community in the world through that kind of progressivism and inclusion. How does the gospel produce the most inclusive community in world history? Not by lowering or abandoning biblical standards to make it more inclusive. It actually does it the opposite way, by raising the standard. And here's what I mean. Christianity says that God's moral standard is so high that none of us are able to meet it on our own. And so God himself set a plan in motion to accomplish for us what we could not accomplish for ourselves. By sending Jesus, God did in Christ what we could not do. Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life, fulfilling God's perfect moral standards on our behalf. And he died in our place for our sins and was risen so that we might have eternal life. And that necessity... To have perfect righteousness applies to everybody. And that invitation to be reconciled to God through Jesus extends to everybody. Yeah, if you are thankful for that, you can clap for that. It was unprecedented. It was revolutionary. And you know what? It still is. It still is. In 21st century American culture, it is still unprecedented and revolutionary that the gospel and the spirit at work in and through the gospel has the power to not just reconcile us to God, but to reconcile us to one another. And here's what that means practically. It means that following Jesus will bring us into fellowship with people that we wouldn't otherwise be in fellowship with. And one of the most difficult yet rewarding parts of being a Christian is learning to build relationships on this new gospel foundation. Learning to love and enjoy and be enriched by people who are very different from us. And it also means that we don't allow conflict to easily separate us. You think about it. The Bible says that if we're truly born again, come on, y'all know Romans chapter 8. The Bible says that if we're truly born again, listen, nothing will be able to separate us from Christ. And yet we so easily allow things to separate us from each other. Amen. What have you allowed to separate and divide you from other brothers and sisters in Christ? There are some things that should separate us from other professing Christians, unrepentant sin, abuse, for example. But I really want you to think about this. When you think about God's mercy and patience with you, is it possible that you've allowed some things to too easily separate and divide you from a sister or brother in Christ? Maybe today is the day that you actually need to take a step of repentance and humility to work toward reconciliation in that relationship because Christian fellowship is built on a different foundation. It's built on Jesus and the work of Jesus that has been announced in the gospel. But here's number two, Christian fellowship is also shaped by different priorities. You go back to verse 42. And here's priority number one here in the text. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. 
You see, sound doctrine and biblical teaching were central in the life of this church. And how did they know that the apostles' teaching was actually from God? Well, there were several ways, but Luke highlights one way here in verse 43. It says, all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. In other words, God supernaturally authenticated his word through miracles. Just like the law of Moses was supernaturally confirmed with public miracles. Just like the gospel of Jesus was supernaturally confirmed with public miracles, so the teaching of the apostles was also supernaturally confirmed with public miracles. These believers had full confidence that the teaching of the apostles, which is our New Testament, was the authoritative word of God. And so they made it a habit of getting together to study and memorize and apply it to their lives. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And priority number two, they devoted themselves to the fellowship. That word fellowship is from the Greek word koinonia, which means to share in common. And we'll see that word again down in verse 44. But for now, I just want you to notice that it doesn't just say they were devoted to fellowship in general. Look at what it says. It says they were devoted to the fellowship. In other words, they prioritized this particular community of believers and arranged, rearranged their lives in a way that enabled them to invest in these particular relationships. And then priority number three, they also devoted themselves to what Luke calls the breaking of bread, which is another way of saying they made it a habit to share meals together. Except for these first century believers, sharing a meal was a sacred event. You think about it, all throughout the Bible, God's redemptive presence and his provision is pictured as a table. The Passover table, Jesus reclining at table with sinners. The communion table. In fact, most historians believe that this is how these early believers took the Lord's Supper together, as part of this community meal in each other's homes. And so they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. And priority number four, they devoted themselves to the prayers. The prayers. They constantly prayed together. And we don't know exactly what the prayers meant. It's either referring to set prayer times or to particular prayers that they would often pray together. Maybe prayers based on the Psalms or other traditional prayers. But what we do know for sure is that sometimes they pray spontaneously in response to a need, and other times they came together for more organized, scheduled prayer gatherings. They praised God in prayer. They confessed their sin to God in prayer. They sought God's wisdom and direction in prayer. They were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit in prayer. They laid claim to the supernatural power and the promises of God in prayer. I love what A.W. Tozer said in one of his essays in prayer. He said, what profit is there in prayer? He says, much every way. Whatever God can do, faith can do. And whatever faith can do, prayer can do when it is offered in faith. 
He says an invitation to prayer is therefore an invitation to omnipotence. For prayer engages the omnipotent God and brings him into our human affairs. Nothing is impossible to the man or woman who prays in faith, just as nothing is impossible with God. He ends with this. He says, this generation has yet to prove all that prayer can do for believing men and women. He's not saying we can do whatever God can do. But he's saying that in Christ and in prayer through faith, we have direct access to the God who can do anything. And this is why we've been trying to be more intentional about prayer during our Sunday worship gatherings across all of our locations. And it's why we prioritize praying together in our church groups. And it's also why we hold a church-wide prayer gatherings throughout the year. In fact, mark your calendars for Friday, November 18th. Friday, November 18th is our next late night prayer gathering with people from all of our different locations and even other churches. And we're going to set aside time to seek God and devote ourselves to prayer from 8 p.m. to midnight. Listen, these early Christians prioritized learning Scripture together, spending time together, taking the Lord's Supper together, and praying together. Luke says they devoted themselves to these things. These weren't just occasional religious activities that they stuffed into an already full schedule. These were life-giving, non-negotiable priorities. This became a way of life for them together. And I know how our hearts push back on this, especially here in the D.C. area. Like we read this and, and we say to ourselves, this isn't realistic. It's just not real. I mean, how can anybody today like live this out realistically? I got a job. I got family responsibilities. I got school. I got friends outside the church. Go to gym a couple times a week. Y'all go to the gym a couple times a week. <laughs> Travel a lot. I have all this stuff that's already a part of my life. And hear me, none of those things are bad. None of those things are bad. But all of those things also characterize the lives of people who don't follow Jesus. And so here's what I want us to see. This is just all I want us to see. You can't fully experience the life God has for you without also prioritizing the lifestyle that God calls you to in his word. Let me say that again. You cannot fully experience the life that God has for you without prioritizing the lifestyle that God calls you to in his word. And part of that lifestyle includes devoting yourself to the kind of biblical fellowship that we see here in Acts chapter 2 and all throughout the Bible. So ask yourself, do I have a group of people who are prioritizing the things that are making all of us more like Jesus? Am I investing in that kind of biblical fellowship? Christian fellowship is shaped by different priorities. But here's number three. Christian fellowship is demonstrated by different generosity. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 44, Acts chapter 2. 
It says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. That phrase in common is translated from the same word koinonia that we talked about before. And so this is fellowship in action. You see that in verse 45, that they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And it gets more detailed in Acts chapter 4. Listen, as needs arose in the church, people were sacrificially giving, even liquidating some of their assets in order to help up brothers and sisters who were struggling. And as the church grew over time, they had to develop a more systematic approach for doing that. And you see that development as you read throughout the New Testament. Listen, people gave voluntarily but sacrificially to help support brothers and sisters in need. But you say, well, well Mike, that, why do you say this is a different kind of generosity? Because I know a ton of super generous people who aren't Christians. So do I. You don't have to be a Christian to be a kind, a generous person. You don't have to be a Christian to, to give sacrificially. Here's why I say it's a different generosity. It's not the generosity itself. It was why they were being so generous. The best way I know how to illustrate this is with my grandmother. I don't know if you had a grandmother like this in your life or maybe you have somebody else in your life like this right now. But my grandmother, she lived in D.C., Northeast D.C., and when I was growing up, we used to go visit her, stay with her all the time. And even like in college and after college, full-grown man, y'all, with a full-time job, whenever I would go to her house, first thing she'd be like is, baby, you got any money? And she'd try to like give me a dollar. I'm like, grandma, this is not like my sixth birthday, okay? I'm good, right? And she was like, you hungry? No, I just left dinner. Sit down. And she would just go in the kitchen and like scrape something together to make me and my friends or Ashley, where we were dating at the time, make us something to eat. It did not matter. In fact, it was disrespectful to say I'm all, I've already eaten. Why did you come over here then? So she would just make, you know, saying some food. And I remember one time in particular, full grown man, y'all, I'm leaving her house and she stops me. And she looks around and she just grabs a roll of paper towels and says, baby, take these paper towels with you. I'm like, I am a fully grown, I, I don't need your paper towels, grandma. And it's, it's burned into my memory, why? Not because of some paper towels, because of what it revealed about her heart. You see, there was something deeper going on. Like for her, this was not just an act of generosity. It was an expression of family. That, that because she saw our relationship differently, she saw everything she had differently. And this is what's happening in Acts chapter 2. The beauty of what we see here is not just that they saw their possessions differently, but they saw each other differently. They were saying, we're family now. They were saying what Paul wrote about in Romans 12, verse 5. He says, we are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. 1 Corinthians 12, 26, Paul says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This isn't just you have a need, so I'll help. This is your need is now my need. And my resources are now your resources. Now, we devoted an entire sermon last Sunday to biblical giving. 
not encourage you to watch that sermon if you didn't uh, see it or, or listen to it last week. But I actually want to encourage you to think just for a minute from the other side of this relationship. Because we talked about the giving side last week. And we often look at this as an example of radical generosity, but this is also an example of radical vulnerability and humility. And here's what I mean by that. In order for people in need to receive support, they, other people had to actually know that they were struggling. They had to actually tell people that they were in need and not only tell people, but then they had to watch as people sold their possessions to meet their needs. I don't know if you've ever experienced like that kind of sacrificial support. If you've ever like seen people go above and beyond this way to provide for you. I, I'll be honest, it is one of the most awkward and humbling experiences you can ever have. And to be honest with you, I hate it. I absolutely hate it. I hate showing people how needy I am. I love to preach about how needy we are. I hate showing people how needy I am. And I know some of you can identify with that. I've shared this before, but my wife and I, we were going through the worst season we've ever gone through in our marriage. We had just had our second child. I was here pastoring full-time and working through my Master of Divinity. She was on staff leading worship, and she was going through severe postpartum depression, and we were just completely overwhelmed. And one Saturday morning, she went to this women's event out at our Montgomery County uh, location. And apparently she shared with them that we were struggling or a table of people that we were struggling because all I know is that I'm at home and all of a sudden later that afternoon, a gang of women show up to my door. And I call them a gang because they were all wearing bandanas. They were armed with all kinds of cleaning supplies and organizational paraphernalia. And they walked into uninvited, at least by me, they walked into our house. They started cleaning and organizing. They folded clothes. And you know what? I was so angry. I was so frustrated. And rather than praise God with my wife for the help that we had received, I lashed out at my wife for telling people that we needed help to begin with. And I share that because I know some of you struggle with vulnerability and humility like I do. And I want you to hear this from somebody who had to learn this. Listen to me. Listen. Some of you, you don't want people to know how bad your family relationships are. You don't want people to know how much you're struggling with your finances. You don't want people to know how deep the depression is and how unhealthy and scary the thoughts are. You don't want people to know those areas of dysfunction, those areas that are embarrassing, those areas where you are weak and you are struggling. You don't want people to know how bad your grades are and you don't want people to be disappointed by all of that. Listen to me, listen. 
Listen, your pride is robbing you of the kind of fellowship that God wants you to experience. For you, it may not even be pride. For you, it might be fear because you've been hurt before. And you've been taken advantage of before, maybe even in church. And your weakness was actually used against you. It was used to judge and condemn you. And so you've put up these walls and you have this defense mechanism. But listen, your defenses are not only protecting you, but they are robbing you of the kind of fellowship that God wants you to experience. They're robbing you from from God being able to pour out his grace and generosity in your life through concrete relationships with other people who love you if you would give them the chance. God wants us to experience this kind of fellowship where we experience his grace and his generosity through other people. That's why I say Christian fellowship, these family relationships are demonstrated by different generosity. I know some of you might push back and you say, well, this is, this is why churches should be small. Like, to be honest with you, Mike, I'm only here because my friend or spouse invited me or whatever. But I, I, this whole church, especially mega church thing, I, you can't experience this type of fellowship in a mega church. And I think there's a healthy caution in that. But I don't think it's necessarily true. Yes, in a smaller church, it's definitely easier for everybody in the church to get to know everybody in the church. But I want you to notice something in verse 46. They had a rhythm. They attended the temple and met in each other's homes. So you remember, the the people we're reading about here, they were Jewish followers of Jesus or or cultural kind of converts to uh, Judaism. They weren't even called Christians yet at this point. So they were seen as a messianic sect within Judaism, not a completely separate religion. So although they no longer participated in temple sacrifices, they still gathered in the outer court of the temple where the apostles were able to teach. And you remember, it's like 3,000 people that were added in a day to the church in Jerusalem. And it was continuing to expand. And so you see this in Acts chapter 5 where they met in what was called Solomon's portico. It was in the, uh, the outer courts of the temple. So there were large gatherings at the temple, but also smaller gatherings in people's homes throughout the city. My point is they were growing like crazy, but they didn't allow that to hinder them from living in intimate fellowship with each other in smaller groups. Listen, we may not be able to have intimate fellowship with every member in the church, but every member in the church should have intimate fellowship with at least some members in the church. And this is why we do church groups. You heard us kind of launch the vision for church groups, these communities of people meeting in neighborhoods and homes all throughout the D.C. metropolitan area, devoted to caring for one another and helping each other grow to become more like Jesus and equipping and supporting one another and making disciples here and all over the world. This is why we do church groups, because we're saying we're not just going to settle for mega church Christianity. We're going to live biblical Christianity. And so, yes, by God's grace, we want to steward all that God has done and been doing over the history of McLean Bible Church. 
But we're not going to allow that to make us settle for less than what God holds out for us in his word. And so we get together in these smaller communities to enjoy this kind of fellowship with one another. And I don't say that just for you to join a church group. I say that because there's so many of you here watching at other locations who you need to actually consider becoming trained and coached to lead a church group. Because so many of you will say, well, I don't need a church group because I already have this kind of fellowship. Well, what if that is God inviting you to lead so that you can make this kind of fellowship available to people who don't have it? So maybe God is putting that on your heart, even if he isn't. Go to mcclainbible.org slash church groups and get information for how to be trained and how to be coached. All the training is virtual. It's online and we'll coach you and support you in helping lead other people to experience and enjoy this kind of biblical fellowship. I mean, this is the invitation from God to, to, to participate in the work that he's doing. And that's why I want to point out this last difference and we'll end on this. Christian fellowship results in, number four, a different impact. A different impact. It has a different effect. And we're going to get to verse 44 in just a second as we close. But before we do that, I want you to notice something. Notice something. Notice what their fellowship together felt like. Not just to them as Christians, but what it felt like for unbelievers in the community who interacted with them. Like, did you catch the words used to describe their community? Look up in verse 46. I love how the New American Standard Bible translates it differently than the ESV that I have here. It says, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. That word awe is translated from the Greek word phobos, which is where we get our word phobia. It means reverent fear. And it's used over and over again throughout the New Testament whenever God demonstrated his power in an undeniable way. When Zacharias, how he felt when he saw an angel, when the, how the crowd felt when they watched Jesus raise a dead man to life at a funeral procession. It was this reverent fear, this sense of awe. And here's what that word means. It's an awareness that I'm in the presence of something more powerful than me. It is a sense that something or someone supernatural is here. And this was the feeling that pervaded the Christian community. They were filled with a sense of reverence and awe. They knew that God was among them. And people that didn't know that wondered, is God among these people? Because of what they saw happening in the fellowship of these believers. So they were filled with reverence and awe. But look, they were also filled with joy. You see that in verse 46. It says they were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. And look, it says they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. Can I just put this in real layman's like Mike Kelsey language? Like, y'all, they had fun. They what? They had some of y'all are fun. Don't look around. They had fun. They were spread out all over the house. Some people around the table, some sitting on the floor, some standing in the kitchen. They were eating good food and joking and laughing and enjoying and praising the goodness of God together. Normal, everyday life infused with the joy of the Lord. 
There's one woman in, in our group. She's the oldest in our group. I hope she doesn't mind me saying that. I'm not telling her who she is, whatever. But she has a son that's almost my age, and I love her, right? But here's, here's one of the reasons I love having our group, because one of my goals every week, and we're almost successful, is to get her to that point of no return. You know what I mean by the point of no return? The point of no return is when, like, your, your laughing gets beyond your control. Where you know you should stop laughing, but you can't stop laughing. And you know you're beyond, like, being dignified. It's the ugly laugh now. You're done, right? That literally happened to me one day at a funeral. It was a terrible experience. And it was my brother's fault. It was, it was horrible. But listen, yes, sometimes life is heavy and we grieve together. But God is also good, and so we rejoice and we enjoy life together. And so you follow the words used to describe their fellowship, awe, joy, and then there in the middle of verse 47, favor. Favor with all the people, not just with each other, but favor with the community around them. In other words, their fellowship, the way they loved God, loved each other, and loved the community around them, it was attractive to people. When people outside the church interacted with people inside the church, they actually enjoyed the interaction. Now, we know that later the religious leaders would stir up controversy and turn people against them. But generally, they had favor with the people that they interacted with. See, listen, our goal as a church is not to be known for an attractional production on Sunday. Our goal for our church is to be known by attractional people. To have attractional people who are living attractive and winsome lives. A community of spirit-filled people whose lives attract people to the wisdom and goodness and power of God. That's why I say it's a different impact, that Christian fellowship has a different effect, because it doesn't just draw people to us, but it ultimately points people to and draws people to God himself. And when people with spirit-filled lives start spreading the spirit-empowered gospel, then God begins supernaturally drawing people's hearts to him. And that's what we see happen as Luke ends verse 47. He says, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Those who were being saved. And here's what that required of them and what it requires of us. It required them to make room for people whose hearts were being drawn and transformed by God. It required them to not just get comfortable in their little huddle of Christians, not just be like, I'm good, I already got my two or three BFFs. No, it required them to make room. What do you do when 3,000 people are being added and more people every single day? What do you do? You start opening up your home. You start putting an addition on the back of your house. You start meeting out in a field. You start making room for what God is doing. And this is the privilege that we have to participate in. It's why I encourage you to get trained and coached to lead a group. Because it's not just facilitating an hour and a half discussion. It is you saying, God, I want to help make room for the work that you're doing in the lives of other people. And listen, some of you who are here, some of you, some of you, you don't have this fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ because you don't yet have this fellowship with God. And see, this is something that 
You can't, you can't earn your way or finesse your way into the family of God. You have to be added, verse 47, into the family of God. Who does that? It's God who does that. How do you receive that? You can't do anything to earn it or achieve it. You receive it from God by turning from your sin and putting your trust in Jesus as the one who gave his life for you. And you say to God, God, I want to be in your family. I want to be reconciled to you. I need to be forgiven of my sin. And God, I'm putting my trust in Jesus. This is how you begin to experience fellowship with God. And then in the, out of the overflow of that, you begin to learn how to enjoy and experience fellowship with God's people. Christian fellowship is different from other forms of community because it's based on a different foundation with different priorities and a different generosity, and it ultimately results in a different impact. And so here's my question for you as we close. Here's my question for you. Are you actively cultivating this kind of fellowship with a group of people in your life? If not, what step do you need to take? You need to think and pray about that. What step do you need to take? And if so, how can you expand that fellowship to invite and show hospitality to those who don't have it? God created us to enjoy this kind of fellowship now and one day for all of eternity. Let me pray that God will help us toward that end. Father, we thank you so much for your word that reveals to us how we can have fellowship with you and how we can enjoy fellowship with one another. And God, for those who are here at one of our locations watching online, God, I pray for those that don't yet have true fellowship with you, that today you would draw their hearts and that they would be saved and trust you. And Father, for those of us who have fellowship with you, Lord, would you Help open our hearts and help us to open our lives to devote ourselves to that kind of fellowship and devote ourselves to making that kind of fellowship available to others. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.